I kind of feel like we should mention here, actually, as a final thought, that there was a whole podcast series about this incident, and they didn't talk about this. Remember, the show is PG-13, so you might hear a naughty word or two. Norbert's has a sale on pink and royal blue domino cartwheel blocks. Go to norbert's.net for a 10% discount on anything with the code GYMCASTICMAY. Norbert's is also having a giveaway. It's a 48-inch sectional beam. There's free delivery included in the U.S. Just follow Norbert's Athletic on Instagram, then like and comment on the giveaway post. The winner will be drawn on June 1st. Good luck. If you're like me and you've had to annotate all of your gymnastics books because of the website gymnastics-history.com, then this episode is for you. Entire judging panels replaced, Olympics distributing the wrong scores, floors filled with rubber balls. It's Dr. Uncle Tim's Mythbusters, the surprising history, correct history of gymnastics. This is episode 21 for the week of May 23rd, 2022, and welcome to the number one gymnastics podcast in the galaxy. I'm Jessica, and I'm here with Spencer from the Balance Beam Situation and the triumphantly returning Dr. Uncle Tim, PhD, one of the four original hosts of Gymcastic. If you've been listening for all nine years that we've been around and all 10 million downloads, not to brag, we've flown past 10 million now. Uh, you will remember uh, Uncle Tim from before he became a big, you know, star PhD. Um, but now we have to call him Doctor. He insists on it. Um, <laughs> and he is back. Um, so, uh, Uncle Tim, you have been working on this amazing website called gymnastics hyphen history and i feel like you're redoing your entire phd this time but now you're doing it on gymnastics can you talk about what the site is and what you have what's like the most shocking thing you've learned in your research yeah so i am basically doing a deep dive on gymnastics history uh i'm kind of jumping all over the place originally the idea was to go deep on single years. Um, right now I'm doing the really old world championships just because we don't know a lot about it. But in terms of most shocking thing, I think what we're going to talk about today is probably the most shocking. Um, but I'm always surprised at how much we don't know and how much we've gotten wrong over the years. And I'm also surprised at how much disorganization plays a role in a lot of these stories that we're about to tell. Um, so yeah, I think that's what shocks me. A tale as old as time, disorganization <laughs> and a lack of proofreading. Yeah. So over the weekend, I published a theory about the Sydney Bolt uh, situation during the all-around final. And Spencer, can you kind of set the stage of what happened during the all-around women's all-around final in 2000 in Sydney? Oh boy. Yes. I mean, I would love to. Favorite topic. So we had the all-around final. Fav favorite-ish Svetlana Horkina, at least favorite in her own mind, because it's Horkina, but also the favorite in many other people's minds. We had Andrea Raducan from Romania leading the team triumphantly, a team gold medalist, lots of other major contenders. Um, it was supposed to be this extremely exciting, close-fought, all-around final that would definitely be remembered for the gymnastics performed and absolutely nothing else about it. Turns out we had a vault issue, a vault height problem, 
realized or at least brought to light by the finally by the observation of Alana Slater from Australia, who was like, I feel like that vault's wrong. And then everyone else was like, yeah, we've been falling a lot on that vault. They examined the vault, found out that it was too low, famously gestured to have it raised. It was a whole drama. Athletes were given the opportunity, maybe to, if they wanted to, if they had already gone on vault, they could maybe do it again. Or, but, but, uh, we're not going to redo the final because how could you? And it was a whole big old mess among many messes at the 2000 Olympics. And Jessica, you love a good conspiracy theory. So back in the day, what were your conspiracy theories? You know, I didn't have a TV when this happened so i don't remember how i watched this but i did watch this meet and i was like in total shock i was like this can't happen this doesn't happen like this isn't a thing i was i don't even think i think i was so shocked that i didn't have any kind of conspiracy theory at all basically is is the the level that i was at yeah i know can you imagine (laughs) me without a conspiracy theory uh, anyway, that, yeah, that's kind of what I think. That's how bad it was and how shocking it was even to me. I mean, yeah. Horkina, of course, has since said that it was a plan to stop her from winning because she had already been like the world champion like 117 times in a row and was like unbeatable. And she was, you know, basically guaranteed to win. Um, and that it was, you know, against, it was a plot against Russia. But it's worse than that, what happened. As you have discovered. So what is your theory about what happened here? All right. So I was working on a different project and Hardy Fink had to send me the apparatus norms for that project and which were published in the year 2000. And when I saw them, it hit me. I I think this is what happened. So here's my theory. Okay, wait, can um, you so, tell everybody who Hardy Fink is? Because you're like name dropping, oh, like, you know, sorry. admirable. <laughs> you guys are best friends, but you know. Hardy, Hardy Fink is a former men's technical committee president. He's also the mastermind behind the open-ended scoring system. Um, so yeah, that's who he is. Anyway, so quick backstory. The vault was set at... 120 centimeters for roughly 20 years and then the FIG decided to raise the women's vault to 125 centimeters and that was effective January 1st 1998 so for example at the 1990 world championships the women vaulted at the new height so you fast forward to the year 2000 the year of the olympics at the beginning of 2000 the FIG published its apparatus norms for the Sydney Olympics. And the apparatus norms are essentially the guidelines for setting up the equipment. It tells equipment, it tells you how thick the mats have to be, how high the bars can be, etc. And in the 2000 apparatus norms booklet, there was an error. And that error was the height of the vault. It listed the old height at 120 centimeters 120 centimeters instead of 125 centimeters so five centimeters too low and the vault in sydney happened to be five centimeters too low anyway so of course you have to amend this error in this book because it's pretty much the bible that everything's supposed to be based off of um and you can't just hope that no one will notice this big error in the apparatus norm so jessica if you were in charge of amending this error how would you have done it (laughs) oh my god well you guys know what i do 
I don't notice until it's the day of, then five minutes before you guys notice and tell me, and then I quick do a find and replace, or I just sit, mention it constantly and then put notes in the private chat about what, you know, what we should be talking about or stop and erase things. But if I was in charge of the gymnastics, which anything with numbers would have been a terrible idea for me to be in charge of, um, I think I would have put like a, I would have in our meeting, like, cause there's a bunch of, there's constantly meetings, FIG meetings, meetings, meetings. I would have like printed it out and highlighted it in like giant pink circle letters. And then like the vault has to be set for women at this, this is a mistake and put signs all over the place. And I would have put a sign on the apparatus to remind people. And then I also probably would have measured it to make sure no one died because like that's your whole job if you're in charge of the apparatus things but then i can also see that if like i had worked my whole life to get this job well not me because i have no pride at all <laughs> i don't um but i can see how people might be really embarrassed to make such a big deal out of a mistake so they might not have like plastered at all. Like I would have also put it in every bathroom stall for all everyone <laughs> working at the Olympics just to make sure. But I can see how maybe that didn't happen. Is that what happened? <laughs> bathroom stalls? No, there were not bathroom stalls. No glitter lettering or sparkles here and there. Spencer, what would you have done? Oh, I mean, I obviously pretended it was someone else's fault is like item number one. Like, obviously, I did not make this mistake. It was probably Jessica. Um, and then you print a retraction so that you're covered and that if anyone is then makes a mistake, it's their fault and not yours because you printed a retraction. Hands wiped, walking away. See you later. Yeah, that's pretty much what Jackie Fye, the president of the Women's Technical <laughs> Committee, did. She issued what they call in the FIG a circular to the gymnastics community, notifying them of the error. I mean, even if you had tried to destroy all the books, there's no way you're going to destroy all the apparatus booklets. Um, do you guys know about the Wicked Bible? The Wicked, not Wiccan, Wicked. Wicked no. Bible? No, what's the Tell Wicked me. Bible? It's the Bible from the 1630s that said, thou shall commit adultery instead of thou shall not commit <laughs> adultery. And they try to destroy all the copies, but there's still a few copies, copies floating around the world. So, you know, there's no way you can get rid of all those wrong app apparatus norms. Um, so yeah, anyway, there's no, and there's also no guarantee that everyone's gonna sit there and write in their apparatus norms and cross out the 120 and write in a 125. But, you know, Jackie Fi did what she could. She issued her circular and that's what she did. So then fast forward to the Olympics in September of 2000. Uh, the apparatus norms are essentially the guidelines for setting up the apparatus at the Olympics. And if you're responsible for checking or setting up the women's vault after the men's all round and don't know the measurements off the top of your head, you're going to look at the apparatus norms booklet to see what the vault height should be. And if you're unaware there's an error in the apparatus booklet, you're going to set the vault to 120 centimeters because that's what the booklet said. And you're going to think that you did the right thing because that's what the book said. But also there should have been a fail safe in place, but that mm -hmm. fail safe 
failed <laughs> uh, in the 1997 technical regulations. Uh, it indicates that the technical committee and apparatus commission, quote, control the measurements of the apparatus following the FIG apparatus norms and make sure that the apparatus are set correctly, safely, and stable, end quote. But obviously, whatever system the women's technical committee had in place didn't work because the apparatus was not set correctly at the beginning of the all-around final. Um, and maybe they forgot to check it right before the competition, who knows? Um, since publishing my article, I have an idea who might have set the vault incorrectly, um, but I don't want to point fingers because that's a litigious can of worms that nobody on this <laughs> podcast wants to open, I'm guaranteed. <laughs> do not. <laughs> but I do think it's safe to say whatever protocol the Women's Technical Committee had in place uh, for double-checking the equipment had a lot of room for improvement. So Jessica and Spencer, let's assume that my theory is true. What needs to be done? What do we need to do in order to make sure that the 2000 Sydney Women's All-Around Final never happens again? Let's start with you, Spencer. Well, I mean, what we have to do is follow what you were supposed to do even in Sydney because it's the kind of thing that shouldn't have happened then even if you have a typo in the apparatus norms there should have been people checking on the apparatuses at which they were supposed to do required to do in the rules and so those rules still exist you still have to do that and you know there's at a certain point you have to rely on people to do what they're supposed to do right no you can never rely on people to do what they're supposed to do if we've learned anything. Or as uh, as Fact Checker just said, never take competency for granted. You have to have, like, it's supposed to be the organizing committee, like, the Olympics are supposed to put the show on and, like, that the FIG is responsible for the Olympics. Like, it's their party, right? It's the organizing committee, but it's... So I feel like there should have been like an overall like the FIG president has a lot of responsibilities and there's a lot of like pomp and circumstances meeting people and shaking hands and like handing out pins and stuff like that but really I, important so important such important work very important you know they had to get down on the floor during the COVID protocols no one is allowed to watch gymnastics and give Simone a watch or something but um <laughs> That was very nice. But uh, yeah, I feel like there should be the checklist and the FIG president should be like, hey, the final checklist. Did you check the, every single apparatus? Yes. Did you check the da, da, da? And I think that's kind of what we see now at competitions since then. I mean, uh, I see that FIG has a specific apparatus control staff. And they have a bunch of meters and lasers and stuff, and like they walk around after the equipment. If you're not, if you're not watching the video of this podcast, Jessica <laughs> just did a sharpshooter motion with lasers, <laughs> like she was pulling them out of her pockets. That's how you use them. That's how if you use lasers. Okay, yeah. If you're a club gym nerd member, you can see us recording this. Of course, not Doctor Uncle Tim because he is a man of mystery, um, as you know. But uh, there is they have all this stuff and I'm constantly trying to figure out like what they're using, but they're, they have a staff that does that. They have the apparatus manufacturer who put the apparatus up and when they're changing it, it's their job to like change it. So there's a double 
there's people who really know what they're doing, including, you know, you made the, this equipment. It's your job to know how it works. And you're in the, the FIG staff's job. And then a third person you see walk around is the, like, it's like a technical head uh, judge who walks mm -hmm. around and extra checks the equipment. So there's like a triple fail safe now from what I see on the outside at the competitions. And then, of course, you have the coaches who like Armine, who double checks every piece of equipment constantly at every single meet over and over and over like it's a tick um and i appreciate that like if you're gonna have a tick let it be about the safety of your gymnast or how straight the beam is the thing i don't see anybody do you see people jump on the bars you see people jump on the board you see people jump on the floor they're lifting up the carpet after the 2017 hole in the floor incident where they had to read and mm -hmm. add extra people to finals because there was a hole in the floor thank you bart Low from the netherlands um there i don't see people getting on the beam or getting on the vault I would like to see people get on vault and stomp on it and jump off. And I would like to see people get on beam and stomp on it and wiggle it side to side. That's the only thing I feel like is missing from, you know, we get in very, very early to the competitions before, mm. before sometimes the lights are even on. They're still exploding when we arrive, as a matter of fact, and falling from the ceiling sometimes. So, yeah, I would like to see that. But I feel like there's a lot of changes that have been done since this happened yeah so to help people out um the laser people are actually <laughs> from <laughs> the fig gym lab freiburg test institute so the fig actually has a test institute for equipment and approving equipment etc and so those people are in charge of the apparatus control in the competition hall and in the warm-up hall prior to podium training as well as in the training halls and then the super technical judge that you referred to is called the apparatus supervisor and they are responsible for the con apparatus control during the competition do you see i love this even though i can never remember the name of anything <laughs> i do know what's going on but you know if i i mean this is the thing i always think i was thinking about this this weekend because i saw people littering and picking wow. flowers that were it specifically said were you know protected environmental re they had to replant the things for purposes of things not sliding into the ocean and they were just climbing the little sign was right there and i was like i want to be an undercover park ranger this is what i want to do when i'm tired i want to hand out tickets for but the point of me saying that is mm. should you purposely sabotage something like before training when everything's just being set up to make sure that everyone is on their toes do you think that's a good idea it's not going to put anyone in danger you have to stand there and will make it sure. will it not i mean <laughs> should you purposefully sabotage <laughs> it's a great start to a question i mean i understand your love of you know all stings and um, <laughs> what is it called honey traps and things like that jessica's favorite <laughs> uh no i say no but you know sure even if it's something that's not i can't think of anything actually that's not dangerous in gymnastics mm. i can't think of a single sabotage honey trap that's what a honey trap is no a honey trap is a sexual version of 
thought. I was like, that's that's a booby trap. And a... anyway, no. you guys, you've learned something new. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I really appreciate the coaches that are always doing cuts because like I swear I didn't do this as a coach. Like I just assumed the equipment was good and I should have been doing it. But I mean, it, you know, I coached before the 2000 Olympics. So I would I have changed all my behavior based on that afterwards? I don't know. Uncle Tim, when you coached, did you check all the equipment beforehand? Not that, not like that, no. I mean, I was thinking a lot about this, how sometimes when you're coaching vault with the younger kids and they all have different vault settings, how sometimes you'll end up with like the vault at an angle because one side's higher than the other back in the day before the, tab the table vault when he actually had the horse vault. Um, or you'll have a kid yelling down the runway saying, I vault on three and it's on two. And, oh, sorry, for... <laughs> for people who don't know what that means so on uh the vault there are little notches and the, the i don't know how you did it at your gym jessica but you know you had three notches showing so that was three or you had two notches showing that was two i think back way back in the day i vaulted on seven which was like 135 centimeters or whatever so yeah yeah i don't remember there actually being numbers maybe there were but i remember i mean were there numbers especially on bars I would just be like, oh, three showing or whatever. Yeah, three showing, yeah. Yeah. And I was always yelling. I always had like the farthest away, you know, vault setting, even though, because I was always the tallest, even though I was terrified and wanted it as close as possible. But anyway, yeah, there's a lot of yelling involved too. And remember, Horkina was yelling a lot at this competition. So, mm -hmm. and I mean, this had real consequences. I mean, there was gymnasts that were injured. Australia, who was hurt from Australia and couldn't, I mean, I think of uh, Annika Reeder from Great Britain as being the most yes, uh, Annika Reeder dramatic injury from that fall. Yeah, and she totally missed her hand, right? Wasn't she the one that like one hand completely slipped off? Um, it was scary, and I mean, Horkina, of course, she had already gone to bars and messed up on bars, and then they offered. I mean, this was. This was a really horrible incident. So I don't think, I mean, you'd think this would never happen again, but then we had the hole in the floor in, mm. in 2017. Yeah. I mean, flashback to like a year ago or whatever with the Pan American sandbag vault. Oh God. <laughs> this stuff happens. It does. That is the other thing. I mean, I, I think about like, we were just talking to someone about this recently um, at NCA's actually, we were talking to someone, um, about setting up for various tours and competitions around the world, um, someone who does equipment. And we were talking about the problems of getting somewhere and you're guaranteed something, like you can bolt things into the floor. And then when you get there, they're like, just kidding, you can't bolt anything into the floor. <laughs> and and having to have those kinds of like, you know, I mean, you'd think if you see a bolt in the floor and you wiggle something, it's going to be fine. But if you don't know if, like, the bolts are stripped or whatever, can bolts be stripped? Screws can be stripped. Um, and then 100 men vault on it at 1,000 miles an hour, and the, they slowly start to come out of the floor and the vault moves. Then, you know, you have to bring in the sandbags. Good thing you have sandbags. Right. So I guess be prepared for the unexpected. Or just always have a podium that can have things nailed into it any final thoughts on the sydney vault situation or should we i mean i kind of feel like we should mention here actually as a final thought that there was a whole podcast series about this 
incident and they didn't talk about this. It's true. <laughs> they didn't really talk about it. And they actually interviewed um, the person who was in charge of the event from Australia, Kim, I can't think of her last name, Dowdle or oh. something like that. Mm-hmm. And that never came up. And I would think that she would have thought about this at least. So, um, or probably would have known exactly what happened. And I'm not sure why it never came up in their interviews. Yeah, and Olaru... Yeah, I was Go gonna ahead. say that's one of the interesting things to me is that this is such a very convincing argument. Once you said it or once I read what you had written, I was like, Oh yeah, that's definitely what happened. But you would think that like, shouldn't we have heard about this before? You would think that after it happened, there would be a lot of people familiar with the typo and the apparatus norms who have been like, Oh, I know what happened. Do you think that this didn't come out before because it was like a saving face trying not to get sued? situation because people have talked to you since then who were involved at the time and told you and verified that they think this is the correct your hypothesis is correct right yeah correct i think that i don't know for sure but i think that there is an attitude in the fig of we protect our own and not necessarily you know their own could be very broad. It might not just be, you know, the women's technical community. It could be other members of the gymnastics community. And I think that, I don't know whether it's litigation that they were scared of or just wanting to save face or what have you. But I think that a lot of things don't come out. They just kind of keep it quiet, take care of it quietly and don't say anything publicly. Yeah. I mean, being an American, of course, the first thing I think about is like someone's going to get sued over this um, because that's how we deal when we don't have regulations about something. But this would have probably gone to the Court of Arbitration of Sport. And I don't know. They don't have a very good record as far from my limited knowledge of them of being like, yes, the blame falls with so-and-so. I feel like they're more like, uh, sometimes things happen, things happen and we can't redo it. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Shall we talk about Kozlovska versus Petrick, which we have discussed a little bit before, but I feel like it's the most it's it's the most shocking thing that you discovered that I'm still not recovered from. <laughs> yeah, so Chaslavska versus Petrick at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. This used to be your favorite story. So why don't you, Jessica, fill listeners in on what the myth was in case they forgot. So the myth was that the um, that it was Kozlovska from Czechoslovakia and her country had just been invaded by the Soviet Union um, versus Petrik from the Soviet Union. And that after the competition, uh, it was Cheslovska was winning, but then they changed the judges, ch- stopped the competition and changed Petrick's score so that Petrick and Kozlovska would tie rather than Cheslovska winning outright. And Cheslovska was the reigning all around champion, if I'm remembering correctly, right? The Correct. world all around champion. Um, so the theory was that this was done and there was a long pause um, and the crowd was super angry and the judges were running around talking and, you know, it was a big, there was a big to do on the floor at the time. 
Uh, and then when they tied, they put up the Soviet flag. And uh, this is when Cheslaska famously turned her head down into the side when the anthem was played to show her like a silent protest against her country being invaded. And I, and then she suffered horrific consequences when she returned to Czech to occupy Czechoslovakia, which used to be a country, um, after the competition. And it was always thought that this was a, the judging was corrupt. This was politically motivated cheating that caused this scandal on the biggest stage during the Olympics. And that made her, her protest even more famous, um, uh, at the time. And it was, you know, in, immortalized in, in many ways but especially growing up as gymnastics fans we watched gymnastics greatest stars <laughs> and that is like our bible and that story was told in gymnastics greatest stars and it's always been my favorite i mean i have like art about it i have you know i'm obsessed with this um and then freaking Dr. Uncle Tim comes along <laughs> and ruins my childhood so what really <laughs> happened all right. Well, the myth never really made sense to me because how did they raise her scores during floor finals without affecting the all-around standings? So that part never really made sense to me. And so I looked in the newspapers at the time and they printed the gymnast qualifying scores before the event finals ever took place. They printed the qualifying scores and coming into the final, Natalia Kuchinskaya of the Soviet Union had the lead with a 9.80 average between optionals and compulsories and Viera Czeslavska and Larissa Petrik were tied with a 9.775 average coming into the finals. And then during the finals, Kuchinskaya was a little short on one of her passes. She saved it, but it wasn't her best routine, not her best tumbling. And she re received a 9.85 and finished third with an uh, 19.650. And then remember that coming into finals, Cheslaska and Petrik were tied. So when they both scored 9.9s in finals, they tied for the gold. However, that's not what people in the arena thought at the time, just because dramatic music here, because uh, the <laughs> organizers had circula circula circulated the wrong qualifying scores. Um, and based on the incorrect scores, it seemed like Cheslaska had won outright. And then the organizers corrected the scores and used the actual scores from qualifying. Um, and when they did that, the scores, uh, you know, showed that Cheslaska and Petrik ended up tied. Um, what the organizers did wasn't cheating. They were just fixing a mistake. Um, of course, you know, gymnastics fans could debate whether Cheslaska's routine or Patrick's routine was better until they were blue in the face, but there wasn't cheating. They were just correcting the scores. So Jessica, how do you feel now that your favorite myth has been debunked? Well, for me, it doesn't take away from the fact that we know there was blatant cheating going on during this time. This just wasn't one of the occasions. This is actually an example of what Spencer always argues for, is it's never too late to fix a mistake. It's never too late to do the right thing. Did you know you argue for that a lot? I didn't know I argued for that, but I like it, so sure. Yes, you do. I mean, Good. 
Um, I think that for me, the her protest still matters because her protest matters. It's not just that she was protesting the scores of the perceived cheating at the time. It is that she was protesting the invasion of her country. And I think that's something that everyone can relate to and can, you know, be understand what she did and why she did it. Um, I think that if it was just protesting scores, it would be kind of a hollow gesture. But the fact that, um, you know, it was more about the invasion of her own country, it, it is more powerful. If someone just did that because they were being a baby about scores, even if it was cheating, I'd kind of be like, eh, don't be a spoil sport. But for me, it doesn't change my love for her action uh, in this case. I guess that's how I feel about it. I mean, I also think, oh, go ahead, Spencer. I was going to say, if it were just about scores, someone would have done that on literally every podium from starting at the beginning, through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s, because, I mean, come on, <laughs> these scores. <laughs> um, did, did we find out if she was ever punished for, not by, you know, when she went back to Czechoslovakia by the occupying mm. Soviets, but by the olympic committee or the fig uh the fi well the ioc didn't strip her of her medals um and she wasn't the only person to protest it at the that olympics and no one was stripped of their medals even though that was also a myth that <laughs> went around for a very long time um in terms of the fig i don't think so. When she went back to Czechoslovakia, the government made it very hard for her to find work. Um, and then, in her opinion, used her as a political pawn for oil. Um, so she was sent, for instance, to Mexico to coach for a little while and stuff. But within the country, uh, someone of her stature, she didn't really have the visibility that she should have had she should have probably gone on to be the next you know national team coach and that never happened for her yeah um i think so for me like okay remember how a couple of worlds they've had commentators to tell you what's going on including not the most recent one they did but it wasn't the same. I would say 2019 is like a was when they had the most continuous updating what was happening uh, mm -hmm. throughout the competition. And I, I wonder if, if there had been something like that, because there was absolutely the capability of doing it and, you know, at this Olympics, would it have helped? And could this all have been avoided if, you know, someone ran up to the announcers and said, hey, we're correcting this mistake or would everybody just have been like, let's just hope nobody notices there's this 10 minute or what was it? 20 minute pause or whatever. I can't remember which one the, the Moscow was the like 20 minute delay. And this was like a 10 minute delay, right? It was a while. Uh, I don't remember exactly how long it was. Uh, there are a lot of delays during this, <laughs> this competition. There are a lot of delays in oh, that we read about during this era and it's always like the crowd stood for an hour and 45 minutes and i'm like did they though did they i mean has anyone immortalized the slow clap that i started in <laughs> the 2011 world i mean i don't know if that has been 
it was a waste. Jessica invented the slow clap. I invented it. True, true story. Fact checker was there. Um, I would just like that to be to be recorded for but the record. To, to what you just said, Jessica, about like a public address announcer saying what was going on, would you have trusted the public address announcer coming on and being like, "Actually, we've just learned that the Larissa Petrick of the Soviet Union score is different than it was in qualification." You would have been like, "No, sure, okay." Mm-hmm. they would have had to say explicitly what uncle tim just said like we the, the you know the organizers accidentally distributed the printout had the wrong score on it her actual score was this so we are correcting our mistake from earlier so that you know everyone's because during this time your score from prelims counted it wasn't new life i don't think we mentioned that and that's super important right yeah yes correct yeah so that is why it was so important that it, you didn't just have to get there your score from before counted um but this is why because of your story about this because of you uncovering this i keep all the freaking printouts from all these damn meets now so my freaking oh. office is just like <laughs> a thousand our world well yeah <laughs> welcome and to what we've keep... been doing all along <laughs> and keep every apparatus norm too don't get rid of those Yes, and you can't count on it just being online somewhere. Like, I feel like it's really important to print it out, like we know, screenshots, and then keep it forever because, you know, you don't know when something's going to be taken about. And it's not like the Wayback Machine categorizes every single FIG PDF, which, you know, we also need. (sighs) So, Spencer, can we talk Hmm. a little bit about how this myth was made and fill in listeners a little bit on how maybe the editing of gymnastics greatest stars contributed to this myth (laughs) or just you know what was in gymnastics greatest stars so this is where i you know we all learned about it from this This, i didn't learn about anything that wasn't from gymnastics greatest stars and when bart and kathy tell you something you believe it that's just the rules of gymnastics right everybody knows that so they use and i blame mostly the at the time uh television commentary where they had the incorrect scores. So they're telling the viewers, you know, Vera Cheslavska has won gold, Larissa Petrick is in silver. And then they come back later, the television broadcast at the time, they come back later to say, oh, actually, the scores have now changed and we have a tie for gold. And it's sort of that, like, oh, the scores have been changed after the fact that then gets repeated in the uh, voiceover in Gymnastics Greatest Stars. And then we believe that for, you know, the rest of our lives, if Uncle Tim hadn't told me, like, and like convinced us because, you know, we want to believe it so badly. And for all you smart asses out there who just said, why don't I just scan all these documents? That's a great idea. But then I have to remember which hard drive I have it on, or I have to pay to keep it in the cloud. And my closet <laughs> is much cheaper. So that's where I keep my old international gymnastics magazines. And, you know, I just, but it would be faster to find it that way. So, yes, I should be scanning it all. Or, you know, just take a screenshot or take a fo- picture of it with your phone instead of scanning because now they're searchable which is so handy because you guys know how many screenshots you guys know how many screenshots you have so you know how many like i have it's probably not even close to what you guys have um wait okay but there's more things happened at this olympics that we need to discuss there are but before we talk about that i think there are two other things that i want to mention so 
circulating the incorrect scores had happened previously in the oh. run-up to the 1968 games. Uh, there was something called the Little Olympics in 1967. It was essentially an Olympics test event in Mexico City. And during that event, they circulated the wrong scores. And Takeshi Kato was not happy about it at the time. He said, they made many mistakes in the scoring, especially during the first day of the men's competition. When the competitors don't know their own scores, it makes things very difficult for them. It is most important to announce the correct points. I hope next year Mexico will have an electric electric scoreboard. So they had, you know, scoring problems before where they circulated the wrong scores. Um, and then to your point earlier that where everyone knew there was cheating. So the women's technical committee was very aware of that. And the vice president of the committee, uh, Valerie Nagy, wrote an article about the 1968 Olympics. And she said, the judges' work was not always satisfying. There were frequent attempts to bail lack of, of objectivity by clever teamwork. In spite of all that has so far been done, we have to recover much lost ground in the training and education of our judges. And clever that, teamwork. Yeah. That's and like always showing the ability to leave. I like that. Clever teamwork. <laughs> Cheating. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I think that brings us to the next beam situation. So clever teamwork. Um, so during the team final, uh, not team final, sorry, the team optionals, uh, there wasn't a team final at the time. There were just compulsories, optionals, all around finals and event finals. Uh, during the team optional, Chaslaska received a 9.65 for her beam routine. And According to the newspaper reports, the crowd protested for over 10 minutes, Spencer. Uh, at the time, there were four judges, and it turns out that two judges had given her a 9.5, and two judges had given her a 9.8. At the time, a difference of 0 0.3 was not supposed to result in a judge's conference, but because of the protest, it did. Um, we know for certain that Jackie Fye uh, was one of the judges. She went on to become the president of the Women's Technical Committee at the time of the Sydney Olympics too. And Larissa Latina was another one of the judges, famous for all her Olympic medals, competitor against Ch Chaslaska. Feel free to speculate it wildly at home <laughs> which judge gave which score. Um, we don't actually know, so it would all be speculation, but Chaslaska's beam score was then raised to a 9.8 after Bilancher, the president of the Women's Technical Committee, uh, interceded. So let's stop there. Jessica Latina retired after the 1966 World Championships and then judged the 1968 Olympics two years later. Latina was also the head coach of the Soviet team at the time. <laughs> Um, how do you feel about that? Should there have been, for instance, a set amount of time between when your competitive career ends and when your judging international judging career starts? You know, it's interesting because I didn't even think about when it's interesting that you ask about when your competitive career ends and when you can start judging because I didn't even consider like, oh, someone could give their friends who they were just on the team with five minutes ago, you know, they may have implicit bias or implicitly give them higher scores, not take deductions. Um, I was more like, 
how the F are they letting a coach judge <laughs> their own gymnast? And then I was like, wait a minute, we had this happen all the way up to 2016. And it still happens um, at not international competitions, but we're still allowed to do this at domestic. We still have this happening in USAG, right? At our elite meets. I don't know of an example right now. I know wasn't um, Sylvie Breschen judged when Allie was competing? Judged Allie. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I like I didn't even consider like oh I there's no way I would I could take all the deductions from my friend either I would over deduct if my friends are competing or because my friends would obviously be wildly artistic and beautiful and have all my <laughs> team would be like oh my god they would be Netherlandsing all over the place um, I would forget to take any deductions because I would be so taken with the artistry, which duh Soviets in the late sixties. Are you kidding me? It's practically a ballet team. I mean, so yeah, I, there should, first of all, there should totally be a separation. So you should never be judging anyone that you coached gave birth to, uh, mm. lives in your house. I would have all those. <laughs> Cause they don't have like the rule that's missing from this. I think now they have a rule that like someone you're related to, which I think includes like a, a like a marriage or a relationship, right? That includes because they we also had like judges whose kids were competing, um, and I but I think it's really weird. There is this snobbery that I feel like you may have comments on after doing all this research, Uncle Tim, about like only elite gymnasts can judge. I mean, we've talked about this before. It is this like, obviously, if you've done it, then you can judge it. And I'm like, those are actually totally and completely different skills. Like coaches might be better equipped to judge, but doing it and judging it totally, completely different, not to mention the math. Um, and I just think like there is this kind of like gatekeeping snobbery that goes on in this. And just because you can do it doesn't mean you are will make a great judge and i feel like the gatekeeping part is part of the whole it should be an honor it's just an honor to be a judge and we reserve the honor for those who have earned it by you know competing for their country the other problem with that is they don't pay judges enough it's not a profession so the people that you get judging end up being people who don't actually need judge they don't need any money so that people just happen to be wealthy enough that they can live do this all over the world and just take time off willy-nilly because they're independently wealthy somehow or independently stable financially and i that were like should judging so my question so basically i'm like do we need to stop the gatekeeping and has this always been a thing that you have found and number two should judging be a prevention these are my return questions to you to both of you, but Uncle Tim, what have you found? So I think that in terms of the first question, there is this attitude that you should, as a judge, draw upon your own experience. And it was written explicitly, at least in the 1968 Men's Code of Points that, you know, let's say there's a new skill that somebody's performing and you have to rate whether it's an A, B or C skill you need to be able to draw on your own experience to understand that, you know, yeah, this is a really difficult skill or this is a really difficult combination. And so if you weren't an elite gymnast, how could you ever know that? And so I think that there's kind of that ex implicit 
attitude still happening where, you know, unless you were an elite, you just can't possibly understand how hard a, let's say a Van Leeuwen is or something along those lines. Even though <laughs> every gymnastics nerd sits there and debates every value of every skill and whether things should be valued as they are and whether wolf turns are overvalued, et cetera. And the people writing those skills were former elites in many cases. So, yeah. What about you, Spencer? What's your, what's your take? Um, I mean, in terms of that, it's like definitely, especially in terms of valuation, like that shouldn't be a one person decision. And it isn't, you know, you have technical committees now who come up with these things and like the feedback of someone who actually maybe performed that skill. Although, you know, if there's Simone Biles is submitting a skill, it's like, oh, no one's ever done that before. So no one has any way to say like, in my experience competing this Yurchenko double pike, but yeah, it should be part of the decision, but certainly isn't necessary. What was the other question? Should judging be a profession? Yes. Yeah, because aren't they like pros in the ball sports? Like the pro ball sports, aren't they? Isn't that the like, mm -hmm. full-time job? Because if it's not their full-time job, could they be like, is that like open them up to financial, you know, and if they're not like, I know that they can't all be well-paid. It depends on how much money, but I feel like gymnastics is mm -hmm. going to be fine. Um, it is the issue. Like we always talk about, you know, maybe they should allow more judges into the club whether it's brevet judges who can judge at nationals or it's ncaa judges where it's always the same people clomping around to every meet and it's like well maybe the counterpoint is maybe they should be fewer judges and they should be paid a full-time salary so that the expectation is you're available every week and you got hired for the job because it's already been vetted that you don't have these biases Right. Isn't that like Singapore? They pay their uh, politicians really, really well to stop them from uh, being open to bribery. Like they're just taking away the you get paid fine. You're not going to need to be bribed. But I feel like that's a that's a slippery slope because like who knows what enough is enough. Like one person's half a million dollars could be, you know, another person's ten thousand uh, dollars. But that is that is an argument. I just think there needs to be more judges. I think that the pool is still small. But um, okay, so the according to a report from 2019, it is estimated that the average NFL official makes about 200,000 a year, but they're not full-time employees. But 200,000 a year is like, you know. You don't need a second job is right. the implication there. Unless you live in San Francisco or Hawaii, you'll probably be able to like, pay rent on that. Just barely, but. Yeah, that's one month's rent in San Francisco. <laughs> Pretty much take it from someone who knows uh so another detail in the story was that uh vilan chair the president of the women's technical committee uh she had to intercede here um you spencer enjoy thinking about rules in your ideal world when should the president of a technical committee intercede in a competition well, this is an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about before when you were uh, setting the stage of this story, because you said that a difference of three tenths, which is what we had, wasn't supposed to result in a judges conference. So then I was like, as wackadoo as the score was, should the t president of the technical committee shouldn't have intervened because they weren't supposed to in that case. But um, uh, when should they intervene? whenever the rules tell them they're allowed to and at no other times but you know you don't want them intervening so it should be 
a, la- a uh, last resort or a worst case scenario because I don't typically in general I don't think uh, the president of the technical committee intervening lends more credibility to the score. I don't think it makes it feel more legitimate. I was thinking of this in like a broader sense. I'm sorry, Uncle Tim, did you want to add something there? No, I was going to ask you for your opinion. Oh, good, because I'm ready. You know, I'm always ready to give it. (laughs) I was like, is it my turn? I was thinking this in a broader sense in terms of like, when we've seen the technical committee head intervene, and I think it was for a good reason. So um, we have seen when there's an injury. Uh, We've seen when someone, for example, uh, remember when Nellie Kim went down on the floor because um, the, was it 2016 Olympics? Um, one of the Russian team didn't have her emblem sewn on her Leo, and that's one of the rules. Or you have to have your flag or your team emblem or something like that on your Leo. And I was like, as long as she does the same thing for anyone who's forgotten to sew their flag on their Leo, I'm okay with that. Um, if that, you know, if she's seen that happen to other teams and didn't run down and say, hey, where's your thing? Um, then it would be a problem. But as long as everyone, if the technical committee head is like intervening in an issue that might cause a deduction and letting everyone know equally ahead of time. um, I mean, if it's during, if it's it's intervening outside of a routine, I guess is what I'm saying. Because I don't want someone, I don't, you don't want someone going up ahead of time and being like, you know, you have seven kips in there and that's a big waste of time you're not going to get a medal if you take these out you would because it's like part of the competition is learning the code and being a strategist i mean that's part of what you're winning medals for um but i think of like could someone have told manrique uh you know remember you're a big celebrator and that's great but remember salute and then celebrate could someone have intervened then which he didn't get a deduction but there was a big stupid to do about it and then i also think of the tokyo olympics the example of um xiao tung who was deducted for three tenths right in prelims for it was failing to salute not going back on the podium but failing to salute right in tokyo i think we at the well uncle tim what were you gonna say sorry i I believe so wasn't it okay that's what we thought at the time and then i now i'm like wait yes kensley says contended that it was yeah yeah and that's what I did. You know, I looked at some articles and I was like, this is what everything's saying now. So he that happened during prelims and like his technical committee person should have known and talked to him about it and he should have been warned about it. Um, and that's something that the you know men's technical committee head could have do- done and been like, hey, make sure, you know, you got deducted for this. You're a potential medal winner. Make sure you remember to salute. But then he did it again in finals. And so he did it on high bar, forgot to salute. And so then he lost. Um, so I just think, you know, that point three, if it happens twice in a row, is it, do you think it's okay if the t- technical committee head goes down to like a potential medal winner is like, we don't want to see you lose just because you forgot, you know, make sure that you salute. Is that okay? Or is that terrible? And they should stay out of it completely. B. I say it's terrible and they should stay out of it completely. That's not your responsibility and it's not your job. Uncle Tim, what do you think? I think stay out of it too. 
yeah. yeah. Um, I actually think that's re- that would be really inappropriate for a technical committee head to do any of the examples you listed. You think it should be up to their technical committee head judge who's there with up their delegation? To, it's up to your team to know the rules. Yeah. So anyone within the team. But if you are in like an FIG position, no, you're not intervening to tell people these things. If you are a judge on the floor and you see even the dumbest deductions that shouldn't have been in the code, like some leotard deduction or something, you take the deduction. It's not your responsibility to tell someone, to warn someone that they're going to have a deduction taken if they don't do something. I know most disagree, but I'm like, no, that's not the judge's responsibility. The responsibility is to take the deduction, not tell you that you're going to have a deduction taken. That's your coach's responsibility. And you're opening yourself up to accusations of favoritism because there's no way you're going to be able to tell everyone every problem and then people will say well you told so and so this but you didn't tell us about x y and z and so your favorite you're showing favorites Hmm. what if it was i'm trying to think of something uh what if someone keeps uh, I'm trying to think of anything that is like just something that could be <laughs> misunderstood culturally, like or just you don't know that you're getting down off of the. What are the dumb rules that they've? Oh, you didn't wipe up your stupid chalk. I mean, everyone knows, but that's a stupid rule, right? So, what if someone says, "Hey, make sure you wipe up your chalk." If you're a judge, unfortunately, it's why both me and Jessica would be terrible judges. You don't get to decide what rules are stupid and what aren't. You have to treat all of the rules exactly the same. Because we would both be like, no, that rule is stupid. We're not doing it. I refuse to think that's an idiot would think that was a rule and we're not doing it. You You would make great NCAA judges, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, speaking of which, it's time to pay some bills. Uh, Spencer, do you have things to tell us about? Sure, I do. So, if you're like me, Mother's Day comes around every year, and you're like, I got this. I know exactly what to do. Nailed it again. I'm perfect. And then Father's Day comes around, and you're like, oh, huh. What are you, what are you, what are you about? What do you, do you like anything? So this is why this show is brought to you by StoryWorth, which is an online service that can help you and your dad or father figure connect through sharing stories and memories, and it preserves them for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your dad a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of options, and you get to see the answers to those questions and might learn things like, what are you about, or do you like anything? Or, for instance, you might learn that your dad was the landscape gardener for an actress who later died mysteriously and has a lot of opinions about what might have happened to her which was brand new information just for example on behind Um, the scenes you're going to tell us about this right this week on behind the scenes friday i would need to get more information first um and after one year storyworth compiles all those questions and stories into a beautiful book that the whole family can share for generations so give all the fathers in your life a meaningful gift you can both cherish for years to come story worth 
Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash gymcastic. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash gymcastic to, send, to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash gymcastic. This episode is also sponsored by a better help online therapy so you know life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it symptoms can include stuff like lack of motivation forgetting to double check the apparatus height when it's your whole job deciding you can't be bothered so you're just going to round up the numbers because decimals are for losers feeling helpless trapped detached fatigued and more we associate burnout with work but that's not the only cause it could be because the men used to have music in their stupid gymnastics routines and then they stopped using music and what's even the point of men's gymnastics without music anymore and our roles in life can cause us to feel burnt out and better help online therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing the stress in your life I've used online therapy for many years. It's been super helpful. I would absolutely not be able to do this job without having therapy in my life. Um, and I have used it on and off. And uh, I could not have survived the quarantine Olympics in another country by myself without therapy. So I'm a big fan. Uh, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and can be, you can be matched with a therapist within 48 hours. Gymcastic listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash gymcastic. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash gymcastic. This show is also brought to you by our club gym nerd members who support us, help us travel to competitions, get extra an extra podcast every single week. They get discounts on our live show tickets first. They get first dibs on live show tickets, discount on our merchandise. Um, I forgot, not a discount on the live show because um, those cost a lot of money to put on. I'm sorry, but you do get the best tickets first. Um, but we also talk about all the latest stuff that's going on on behind the scenes right away. So like last week, we found out that Dana Duckworth at Alabama um, stepped down from her job at Alabama. And then what was it? 96 hours later they had a new head coach which is extremely unusual and we will discuss more um but if you can't get enough of us join club gym nerd because you can watch us if you like to be if you're a visual listener and also you get a whole extra podcast every single week from us and we do way more than that when we're at competitions so um people seem to like it so check it out at gymcast.com join the club tab all right where were we? What are, what are we talking about now? We're going to start talking about men's. Men's? I thought this said Mag World War II, but I think it says Mag Willie, which makes me think about penises. Is this a penis? Was there a <laughs> penis falling out besides the Michigan men's incident? No, 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 no. Willy Jaschek, a oh, West German. You love to talk about the Germans, so... Yeah. We, you brought this up a little bit. Uh, so he was the gymnast who tore his Achilles on floor, which was the team's 
first event. Then he went on to compete on the rest of the events, except for Vault. And a Dutch newspaper called him the hero of Mexico. And Spencer, when you hmm. first discussed this on the show, you were very skeptical. I know that Billy did read my post about him, and he didn't have any corrections. So what <laughs> makes you skeptical? I don't think I was necessarily skeptical. I just had further questions like was it a full achilles rupture and if so how did you dismount and like what skills were they and did you die probably not <laughs> you read the post but still yeah i mean it's kind of crazy that he yeah he did all his dismounts essentially the coach pretty much catch caught him catched him mm. where uh, i i don't speak english every day with my child so there's a <laughs> my use all the tenses right you now. want it's okay we're here for you <laughs> and uh he yeah so the co coach pretty much caught him and he landed kind of carry strug like on one foot essentially mm. um but yeah it's i i'm shocked that he was able to do it as well but i think that one thing you could do nowadays if this happened you could because there's a deduction in elite for spotting but it doesn't negate the skill right or doesn't negate the skill if you get spotted it's just a deduction um i'm 99 yeah sure. like it's just a deduct like if you your coach is stepping way in on bars and accidentally touches you or something that's a deduct just a deduction right it's not like a so i feel like what you could do is um sometimes right after ncaa season i can't remember what deductions are and what happens and so forgive me um nice we were in, <laughs> we were in college <laughs> please excuse I have shame. So I think what you could do in this scenario is you could tape someone's foot in flexion um, so that they could land because otherwise like your foot is just going to, you can't push down when you don't have an Achilles. So you're um, you can pull up because you still have the muscles in the front of your leg, but I feel like I'd want to like tape it in flexion. So they would just land like it would just be like a duck foot and then have a spot additionally. But then you get deductions for not pointing your toe because you're gonna be taped in flexion. So also, I your mean, foot you have a torn Achilles. Which yeah. I feel like if you're ranking the problems, <laughs> deductions for not pointing your toe is below <laughs> torn Achilles. I mean they just have to do what Carrie Strug did on her personal nineteen ninety six tour, which was have a bunch of men without their shirt on catch you at every dismount that's essentially what happened right i didn't see that tour so i'll have to go with the O'Burn version of what happened <laughs> i'm sure it's 100 percent accurate thank you very much the other thing that happened on the men's side was there was some drama so oh. jack Guntard was the head coach of the Swiss team. And after compulsories, he said that the judging was so bad that it had robbed the Swiss team of at least five points, which is probably an exaggeration, Jessica. Otherwise, you will picture like, I don't know, the McDonald's Hamburglar sneaking around the judging table, putting a bunch of points in a bag and running away or something. So it's a little, that's my favorite of a... image of cheating ever now i want that to happen on the next simone golden goat tour <laughs> but because of his comments arthur gander who was the fig president at the time the whole 
organization's president, not just the technical committee. He threatened to kick Guntard out of the competition. That didn't happen. But early the next year, the two did have to go to essentially a mediation session uh, when they were back in Switzerland together. They were both from Switzerland. So my question for you two is, at what point should a coach be banned from a competition? And what do they have to do, Jessica? First of all, I would just like to mention my appreciation for the name Gunthard. I appreciate that name very much, and I hope that we can work it into many other podcasts. Uh, so, first of all, no one should be the president of the organization and the men's technical committee head at the same time. That's the first problem we have here. Um, I think a coach should be removed if there's any like physical abuse witnessed, like instantly, like get out of there. Um, I think that's like instant removal. Then we also have the problem. Everyone's like, that's so easy. But then we also have the problem of like, what if it's a minor and they're in the country by themselves? And like, you're supposed to have your coach and then you have to bring, I think, a judge or a, there's always has to be three people um, with you because you have to have like your federation head there as well. So it's not going to be alone, but like, you know, I just think if you're kicking the coach out, how are you actually protecting the, the athlete? And this reminds me of Wrestling Worlds in Vegas, where there was FBI raids and ICE was deporting people and like there was a whole task force assembled. And it wasn't like a task force assembled to like, how do we protect kids if there's any problem? Like a task force of social workers. It was a task force of people deporting the officials from Worlds is what was going on. Um, so anyway, back to the question, when do you remove a coach? I mean... <laughs> um they i guess if the fbi has to get involved because there's some mafia scheme going on and they have to be deported and you have to reverse their visa that's one thing just another example that may have happened at a wrestling competition um but i think i like i mean i like that now we have a mechanism for if you have a problem with a score, I'm not going to call it cheating. If you have a problem with a score, you can immediately put in an inquiry and have a resolution. As long as you have your $300, $200 in an envelope, you're okay. Because at the time, it seemed like, you know, if they had used an inquiry system and then still complained about it, I don't really care because it's fine. I think that, um, <laughs> I think that home slice Arthur Gander was really like, I mean, if this guy was constantly in the news or like harassing him, standing outside of his house, calling him a cheater, then maybe there's a problem. But it's like, you know, one or two interviews where he's like, this sucks. We were robbed. I mean, so what, dude? Grow up. Like, you have to have a thicker skin. But there are definitely cases of like outright abuse where coaches should be if they're, they're putting an athlete in danger or they're putting another athlete in danger. Like if someone accidentally walks in front of the vault when someone else is vaulting, like psh, you're out of there. You, and you're at the elite level. You can't do that. Can't make that kind of mistake. Bye. Or the NCAA level, which happened this year. Yeah. Although that was not a coach. It was no, a. But it was a camera person or wire carrier. Wire carrier should carrier. have been banned from gymnastics meets, fired on the spot and banned forever from gymnastics meets. So, I mean, there's a lot of people we could throw out of meets. Like we're here mm. for this. It's... I have, yeah, we have a, lo a long list. Basically my feeling on the matter is that you should like complaining about scoring and judging should always be fine and everyone should just get over it. And that's true in every sport. Like they always have rules about like, oh, you can't go to the press 
and complain about the officiating. Like, shut up. Yes, you can. Complain about anything you want. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like putting a Z on your chest, you know, is another thing you should immediately be removed for. And there's no excuse for anyone to see that on your chest and then let you stand there and go through an entire medal ceremony. That is a time when I think the technical committee head should have intervened. Can we all agree on that? Someone should intervene. That's not the rule. That's not really what the technical committee head does. Who should have removed that dude then? Should we refresh everyone's memory in case let's about what happened? Spencer, can you remind people? Feel free. Feel free. So it was, uh, there was a competition, right? It was like the week of or the week after that Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, at the award ceremony, the Russia was still allowed to compete then. And uh, one of the Russian athletes before the medal ceremony put a, took tape and put a Z on his chest, which is a symbol for victory and war in uh, over Ukraine and Russia. And uh, he wore that then on the podium and they just let him go through the medal ceremony. He was on the medal podium with a ukrainian gymnast and a gymnast who is engaged to a ukrainian and lives and trains in ukraine so it was a direct aggression against them and also you know a symbol for murder so who should have if it's not the technical committee's heads who should have walked up to him picked him up thrown them over his shoulder ripped that shit off of his chest and walked out of the arena with him whose job was that you <laughs> I love this that like, job that's for the me. Correct answer. <laughs> I would totally have done it, but yeah, seriously, if it's not the technical committee head, whose job is it to? For- I think it is the ju- head judge's job hmm. to enforce the rules on the floor. Maybe. Can you? I would love to have seen Nellie Kim, but she's not in that job <laughs> uh, anymore. Who is? It would have. Oh, it's the Ru- It's a Russian dude who's has the men's technical committee Titov? yeah so it would have I mean, to still did, well he just got voted we out but wasn't he this. at that time yeah <laughs> uh i would have loved to see um the women's technical committee had do it or just steve just send steve butcher out there throw that kid over your shoulder march him out um also i just feel like Anybody wearing the same leggings and sparkle tart that the athlete is wearing, that's also an instance where, uh, you know, <laughs> <someone> should... <laughs> <laughs> coaches wearing sparkle leggings. No, like th- this isn't for you. This is, you're not the star. Like you should be wearing, you know, something that doesn't get you noticed. Anyway, those are my feelings on when you should be banned from the competition or picked up and removed. Like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. This is why they need to bring back those. Um, remember the World Cups where they had the forklifts in the arenas that they would put people on, and then it lifted up the person that won and filled the arena with diesel? Because that's great for a sports competition. This is what they need the forklifts for. If the forklift is coming at you, you have violated a rule. And you're going to be lifted up and taken out of the arena. Okay, I'm done now. Or just one of those metal robots that attacked Horkino or whatever happened. Yes. So, <laughs> anyway, it wouldn't be my triumphant return without a, a classic Uncle Tim quiz. So should we do a little gymnastics history trivia? Please. See who knows more, Jessica or Spencer? <laughs> I'm totally going to win. 
<laughs> I think these questions are pretty easy, but Jessica, true or false? Male gymnasts have competed on pommel horse at every world championships or Olympic games. I, uh, um, yes. Yes. False, Jessica. Ooh. No. Yeah. <laughs> they have competed on high bar and parallel bars at every Worlds and Olympics, but not pommel horse. So there's your precedent, actually, Jessica, for getting rid of pommel horse. <laughs> it's not even original. Get rid of it. <laughs> go back and to the, on the women. Uh, go back to the 1896 Olympics and add like team high bar instead of pommel yeah. horse. <laughs> And so on the women's side, vault is the only event that has made it in every program of every Olympic and world championships. At the 1928 Olympics, women per performed on vault. They could go over a vault, vault, they could go over each other, vaulting any way they wanted. And then <laughs> in, in nine, there weren't really rules. So then in 1934, beam and bars were added. They had the option of parallel bars or uneven bars and only Czechoslovakia performed uneven bars in 1934 and then at the 1950 world championships individual floor was finally added so Spencer true or false mm. the word perfect appears five times in the women's code of points from 1958 the first women's code of points oh how would I possibly know that um uh false Correct. It doesn't appear at all in the 1958 women's code of points. It does appear in the first men's code of points from 1949, but not hmm. nowhere in the first women's. Lucky. Um, Jessica, side note, this is not a trivia question. You'll have a trivia question in a second, but would you rather compete while pregnant like Latina did in 1958 or compete three months after giving birth as Ikeda Keiko did in 1962. If it helps, some reports say Latina was three or four months, you know, it depends on the report you're reading, but three or four months pregnant. The answer is I would rather die than be pregnant at all. So <laughs> that's my answer. <laughs> all right well, <laughs> i won't ask you spencer because you, you don't have a mm. uterus like me so um jessica do we know for sure have you had an mri of your organs maybe there's one hiding you know people find out they have like two vaginas they have some testes hiding up there maybe you have a secret uterus maybe i don't want to make you feel left out just in case you had one and we didn't know mm. all right well, Secret <laughs> Uterus is my new band name. So, Jessica, true or false? Women have always performed individual floor exercise to music. False. Correct. They ah! didn't start using individual floor music until 1958. So, basically, from 1950 until 1956, the women performed individual floor music floor without music pardon so they performed individual floor without music we're tied spencer just so you I know, know. <laughs> i know i'm keeping track here um on the men's side music was part of the program for many years spencer in 1928 yugoslavia performed perhaps one of the first original pain of the nation routines where they told the story of their country's struggle for independence like literal pain of the nation routine yes. 
Um, and Czechoslovakia was supposed to perform to music. However, they nixed it at the last minute because they got the impression during the judges meeting that it would be frowned upon. Um, and I think there were other experiments. Autophobia. Yeah. <laughs> I know, pretty much. So I think there were other experiments I read in somebody's dissertation that the Soviet team performed with music at the 1978 Romania Invitational. Um, But yeah, so Spencer, true or false, basic addition is important. Being able to add is important. (laughs) For For the FIG or for me? Is it important in the world? Yes, true. That is important. True. I feel like my questions are easier than Jessica's. This is, I blame sexism for how these questions are going. (laughs) I try to target each of these questions to the person I'm asking the questions of. So you're correct, Spencer. At the 1928 Olympics, the people doing the math added up the scores wrong and gave the bronze medal on rings to the wrong gymnast. They gave it to uh, Lofler of Czechoslovakia and Neri of Italy should have won the bronze. Uh, Lofler had a 55.5 when you add up the numbers correctly and Neri had a 56. Um, and then in 1934, all the men's results had to be recalculated because the initial scores were incorrect. Um, I won't tell you like how that all changed. Um, and on the women's side, Czech- the Czechoslovaks took first, but they thought that the Hungarians who took second and were hosting the competition were trying to cheat them out of points because there were math errors. And it's hard to say if there was you know, an attempt at cheating or if it was just like the men's competition where they did a lot of math incorrectly. So that's why you should always show your work (laughs) um with that rings the men's rings medal did they rectify the mistake or was it just like too bad not that i know of i don't think they ever rectified it as far as i can tell um any italian history italian gymnastics history book that i've consulted never uh indicated that they changed it and they don't list neri as a the bronze medalist and now we'll talk about the 2004 men's all-around final. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so Jessica, true or false, Nadia Gomenich was the first gymnast to receive a perfect time in false. Olympic history. False, 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 false. <laughs> Who was it? Do you remember? Oh, it was a dude in rope climb. Well, all there were around. a bunch of rope climb time, but there was also another dude on vault. His name was Albert Seguin. Uh, in 1924, he scored a 10.0 on vault. And then also Asian Mac of Switzerland scored three tens. Uh, so his total score was a 30 uh, for the event uh, at the 1928 Olympics, but he did get three tens. Um, three you had. Well, so it was... It, Scoring in 1928 uh, was a little different. You averaged the compulsory and vault and optional vault scores, and he got a 30 for his compulsory total. And I don't have the number in front of me for his optional total, but he ended up with the gold medal. So, but Spencer, you had a problem mm-hmm. when Jessica brought up uh, Albert's 10.0 on vault from 1924, and you said that Nadia Komnich was still the person who got the first 10.0 in Olympic history. Why was that? Because the 10 had not been, I mean, it's like, 
this notion is like true with an asterisk, which is the 10 to the point you were just making that 10 was not established as the perfect score. The only like on other events at this point, correct. Like the 10, you had a similar situation to what we have currently in that, that there was an execution score for the middle of the exercise that was out of 10, but then you also could get uh, half a point for the mount and half a point for the dismount. Like, in 1924, uh, when Stukely won, his ring score was 21.33. And he was one of those people who got like a 10 on rope climb. But it's like, if if the maximum score is so variable from event to event, then yes, you got the number 10. But a 10 has not been established as like a universal uh, sign of perfection. Uncle Tim rebuttal. <laughs> To a certain point, you're correct. Um, but however, in the actual rules for Vault, 10 was considered perfect execution. So he did technically receive for his compulsory Vault side, I think it was Side Horse Vault, uh, uh, was a perfect 10 technically. So, um, and we should also mention that even though it wasn't at the Olympics, Chaslaska scored two 10.0s at the European Championships in 1967, which is often ignored in books um, about the perfect 10. Um, so it was kind of a long time coming. So, um, Wait, I have a question, quiz question for you after I just- Okay, go ahead. Point. My quiz question <laughs> for you. <laughs> Which isn't really a quiz question because I don't know the answer. But how? <laughs> the Jessica quiz. I'm going to ask some questions and know none of the answers. How many perfect tens at Worlds and Olympics were there? Like, I don't need to know the exact number, but like on average, as you've been researching this, how many at Worlds and Olympics? Even though it wasn't the fine, you know, the scoring was different, and there's been an evolution. But how many were there before Nadia? So many. Um, so I have a whole article about the ones that I've found, but it's well over, let's say, 30 perfect tens. Mm. Um, so it's it's a, not necessarily perfect tens. I should say perfect scores. But to Spencer's point where there wasn't necessarily a 10.0 system for every competition. But yes, there was. Uh, um, yeah, there are a lot, a lot. And I'm sure there are more that I haven't uncovered. So now going back to the quiz, Spencer, true or false, there okay. was an obstacle course at the 1920 Olympics as part of one of the gymnastics competitions. True. You're correct. It was judged for aesthetics rather than time. So oh, yes. way, I love that. It was kind of like parkour, kind of, sort of, um, right? It was the idea that you were being judged on beauty and going off of obstacles. It wasn't like parkour where you're like flipping down, you know, staircases or something. They were more just like, almost like steeple jump kind of things, steeplechase from track and field. But yes, there was a, an obstacle course. Jessica, true or false, partner Partner Acro was part of the first Women's World Championships in 1934. If Partner Acro is like standing on someone and like leaning <laughs> off the side of them, yes. <laughs> True, you are correct. There was technically Partner Acro. They had to do some kind of partner routines. There wasn't, as far as I found, a lot written about that section, but uh, the 1934 World Championships were a little different. There were 
three lessons. The first lesson was basically calisthenics as an ensemble, like picture like the old US national team warm up during under Marta Caroli, where you're all doing the same thing together. Um, then the second lesson was apparatus, track and field, and partner acro. Uh, for apparatus, they competed on balance beam, which was only eight centimeters wide, so skinnier than today, vault, and parallel bars or uneven bars. Um, and then for athletics, they competed in the 60 meter sprint, the long jump, and javelin. And the final lesson was rhythmic gymnastics or national dances. So Jessica, question, who would you want to see do track and field or a national dance or partner acro of you know <laughs> roughly current elites? Okay, Simone and Michaela Maroney would right now just like could wake up, put shorts on and win track meets. They run so freaking fast that they, and I'm sure they could do all the other things too. Uh, so those two. Um, for isn't the Netherlands basically already doing a national dance for their introductions at this point? <laughs> True, not the U.S. is my answer for national. Dance. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, who, what about men? Who do we want to see? Which country? I'm gonna say Japan. Uh, mm. I think Japan would probably do it the best. What about Brazil? Oh, yeah. Or the Spanish men's team can dance pretty mm. well, too. So. Or the Italians? Yeah. The Turkey. Italians. I want to see a lot of them, apparently, is what we're saying. <laughs> I want to see a lot of men's teams perform national dances. It's almost like they should have music back in floor and they should <laughs> be required to use the music. Okay, did, wait. I have three. According to me, I have three points and Spencer only has two. I don't right. think that's. I think it's tied. I think it's three three. Fine. Could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so Spencer, true or false? Nellie Kim okay. never competed on a spring floor with coiled springs. Ooh, um, false. You are correct. Nellie Kim. Kim competed on a spring floor at the 1979 World Championships in Fort Worth. It's believed that the spring floor at that World Championships was the first one at a Worlds or Olympic Games. Um, and I think something that is a misconception among American gymnastics fans is that, or well, actually gymnastics fans in general, is that in the apparatus norms um, that I've seen, coiled springs have never been mandatory. We often think that the FING insisted on the use of actual springs, like not necessarily that you would have in your mattress, but that kind of idea. But it's not really in the apparatus norms. They talk about elasticity, but how you provide elasticity is kind of up to the equipment manufacturer. And I think the thing about US gymnastics fans is that we have kind of the skewed version of floor exercise history. So in the early 1960s, the United States, um, the gymnasts used to compete either directly on a wood, like gym floor, like basketball floor, or kind of on a foam mat, similar to like a wrestling mat. But that wasn't what was happening worldwide. So at major FIG 
gymnastics events starting with the 1960 Olympics, there was something called a double swing floor or a sprung floor or Reuther floor, depending on who's talking. It was essentially a plywood sandwich. And in between the layers of plywood, there would be different things to provide elasticity. elasticity. Um, sometimes it was wood, sometimes it was rubber balls. Eventually that became springs. Um, but already in the 1960s, FIG floors had some elasticity. And side note for the physics nerds, um, rubber balls were tricky and the elasticity changed depending on the warmth or coldness of the room. So that kind of quickly got ruled out. So huh, anyway, Jessica. Happen. Modern times. Wait, now all I can think of is there's no actual rule for the coils. All I can think of is like a whole spring floor full of, full of like diva cups or like menstrual rings. As the Of course <laughs> that's what the first thing you thought of. Of course it was. <laughs> of course. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Yes or no. Has a gymnast ever died during the world championships? Yes. Yes, you are correct. During the 1930 world championships, Yugoslav gymnast Anton Malay died during the compulsory rings routine. I, um, so if you don't like to hear about this fast forward, maybe like I know a minute. Yeah, tell Okay, so yeah, trigger warning, but it's not that bad. I mean, it's horrible, obviously, but it's not that gruesome. Um, so he was basically doing the equivalent of like, you know, a skin the cat, but when you're hanging, whatever, when you're hanging down and you haven't come back through forward yet and fell straight down. You can put that into uh, men's gymnastics terms now. So Kensley doesn't kill me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so an inverted hang when you're basically head down, feet up but he was piped but an inverted hang and he fell straight down and unfortunately died during the 1930 world championships um and i don't bring this up because like i love talking about death and gymnastics injury actually quite the opposite if you ever listen to the show um but i think it really shows that there's risk in all skills i think as gymnastics fans and even as coaches you tend to think that oh your kid's gonna get hurt doing the really hard skills like double backs or whatever it is, but there's also risk in really easy skills like hanging upside down. Um, and so I think that that's you know important to show. And then also when you were asking me earlier about like things that I've learned is like, the FIG has really come a long way in terms of safety. There's always more that we can do, but if you take a step back yeah. and recognize how far we come like when you read old reports from the world pre-world war one world championships there are crazy stories like gymnasts falling on concrete sidewalks or gymnasts swinging to the walls during rope climb and getting concussions like there's you know they've come a long way there's still always a lot to do, but they come a long way. So Spencer, true or false? <laughs> An entire judging panel has never been replaced during a competition. False. Correct. Do you remember the story? No, but obviously an entire judging panel has had to be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> so at the 1950 World 
uh, the women's vault judging panel was replaced entirely and everyone vaulted again, except for one person, which was the eventual all around winner, Poland's Elena Rakotsi. Uh, she refused to vault again. And for a while, it was unclear if they were going to name her the all around winner because she didn't have the same judging panel as everyone else. Mm. Um, another interesting tidbit about 1950 it was the first time that there were event winners at a world championships in women's gymnastics so that's you know another little trivia thing just on the topic of dying not to bring us back to death but also i'm doing it because um not while competing but at the 1948 olympics one of the members of the czech women's team died of polio on the morning of the competition and her sister who was still on the team still competed oh yeah so more fun facts i guess vaccines everybody we're here for them (laughs) that's my reminder of that so jessica true or false the fig threatened to give a deduction to male gymnasts with long hair in the early 1970s oh hell yes for (laughs) sure that happened (laughs) it's true so gander your buddy arthur gander home slice as you called him earlier said (laughs) judging panels should consider giving deductions between a tenth and three tenths for quote unesthetic facial appearance uh remember this was like counterculture era the beatles etc longer hair on men um it was reported that in gander's bulletin he was not going to make precise recommendations to the national federations but would ask them to ensure that the gymnast hair is quote good groomed and of normal height um another little (laughs) normal height yeah because that doesn't have racist implications at all. So uh, another Arthur Gander tidbit from around this time, uh, after Kathy Rigby posed nude for Sports Illustrated in 1972, he reportedly called it a most painful affair. So He sounds like Jessica. Yeah, Jessica, are hair deductions ever allowed? Should those ever be a thing? The correct answer is no, they should never be allowed. How, is there a butt coming? I hear a butt coming. However, if your hair is so long that it either is touching, when you're in a handstand, it's touching the floor, or when you are upside down, um, or right side up, sorry, not upside down, it's in front of your eyes, then... I because I don't want to watch anyone get injured, then I would allow that deduction. It's a safety thing, not a like if your hair float if your hair is like so just high, like if you have liberty spikes, but though they don't touch the ground when you're in a handstand, I'm fine with that. But if you're like if you have like uh Paulina Schaefer hair, you have to put tie it up like she does. All the buns. Yes. Yeah. You can't be letting that because literally you do a handstand pull your hair out and fall over so not that i've ever done that obviously that's never happened to me personally but i would just recommend not doing that so no rapunzel's allowed got it (laughs) right or rapunzel bangs no shaggy dog (laughs) bangs to your cheeks 
<laughs> Spencer, true or false? In 1972, countries could choose their own music for their compulsory floor routines. Huh. That's so weird. I'm going to say true. You're correct. It's a bizarre rule. And I it had to do with, in 1969, the Men's Technical, Co Technical Committee voted to make compulsories valid for four years instead of just two. Before that, they had to learn new compulsories every two years, one for the Olympics and one for the World Championships. Um, and the Women's Technical Committee wasn't really on board with that idea, so they made this convoluted compulsories thing. Um, but one of the things was that the teams chose their own floor music for compulsories. Um, another compulsory music tidbit, so you know how gymnastics fans love to take floor music or take floor routines and set it to other music and say, oh, this choreography is trash because you could set it to any song and the movements work with any song. Well, That's a really good impression <laughs> of Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> she has said literally those words on the show probably 10 times. Guess who invented that? The FIG in its own way. So in 1980, there was one compulsory floor routine but three very different music options and the national team could choose which floor music they wanted, but it was one routine, three different uh, songs. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah. And as an that. aside, yeah, as an aside, Jessica, you brought this up on some show recently. There was a proposal while we're on topic of compulsories, there was a proposal that didn't actually happen, but it was a proposal uh, to have blind compulsories. In other words, you would show up to a competition and that's when you would first learn the compulsories, which sounds a little dangerous, but also would kind of prove like who's really versatile as a gymnast um, and able to just, you know, learn a routine and, at, you know, the day I of, essentially love that idea as long as it's basically just skills and turns i kind of love that as long as there's no dance because dance takes time as long as it's just like show your basics like you have to do hip handstand free hip you know don't hold it because that'll mess up your rhythm and you'll get a deduction but show that you're at you know a perfect handstand and then because you know how i love watching perfect basics because you mm -hmm. should be able to do that stuff. Proposal to bring this back. At first, I thought you meant there was a proposal, like someone got engaged during the world championships or something. <laughs> I was, I got really excited, but it's a, yeah, the proposal to just blind compulsories. I love it. The proposal for blind compulsories, I thought that was going to be like everyone does compulsories in the same leotard and you don't know who's which country and then you mm. see what the scores were. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good too. So moving on, Jessica, I know you love Germany. It's your favorite topic. True or false? East German gymnasts refused to compete in the 1966 Olympic test event because they were listed as gymnasts from East Germany. Yes. It's true. Ha! They said, we are a country, not a direction. And the men showed up at the <laughs> arena, and when they saw the name, they refused to compete. And then the women didn't even show up for the event on their day of competition because of that. Whoa. Jessica, bonus point, what was the official name of East Germany? 
the DDR, which is the Deutsches, uh, the, it's the German Democratic Republic. Good job. Very yeah. good. All right, Spencer, true or false? We tend, think of, we tend to think of age issues as a women's gymnastics problem, but the first age issue actually happened in men's artistic gymnastics. True. It's true. Um, as there might be ones before this, but at least as early as the 1907 World Championships, one of the French gymnasts was too young to compete. The age limit was 18. Nevertheless, he was still allowed to compete. So Jessica, precedent. There you go. What, and it's crazy that this happened in men's first. Men yeah. never get accused mm -hmm. of this. Because th at that time, women weren't even barely allowed to do anything. Oh, that's true. So it had to happen in men's of course. first. There wasn't women. Men weren't invented yet. You always have to remind me of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jessica, true or false, according to the 1968 Code of Points, a controlled step was allowed on vault. I think this is true because especially they had that weird, you were allowed to land sideways and people would like step out of it. I think that's true. True. It was allowed as long as the step was in the direction of the descent and not provoked by unbalance. But granted, the emphasis was still on sticking when you read the old reports and stuff. But it's it almost like allowed. So basically exactly the opposite of what Jessica said, who just said, added that there was some step to the side business that you could do. But if <laughs> you your vault is sideways, right, that is you... in the direction. Oh, fair, fair, fair. It's true. Um, they did do the sideways vaults, the cartwheel vault. It's almost like I read all the posts on gymnastics-history.com by Dr. Uncle Tim, PhD. I'm just saying, you might be winning the quiz if you read everything. <laughs> So Spencer, true or false? Aren't I reading the quiz? I have no. <laughs> I have seven points according to me because I got a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Spencer, right. true or false? Yeah. A former president of the Women's Technical Committee is quoted as saying, "There are too many gymnasts who ignore the fact they have legs and who spend their time on the beam, on the back, on their back, sitting, etc." True. It's true. Bilan Cher, who was the uh, president of the Women's Technical Committee in, for a long time, and she said this in 1968. Um, and it always makes me laugh because I just imagine like a 19th century Berteau painting with a woman like lying on a sofa full of ennui, unable to get up because the heaviness of her ennui. It's pretty much what I picture like Same. Jessica doing after this, <laughs> after recording every time, just like lying there. That's correct. So, Jessica, in 1989, the FIG introduced a judge's objectivity evaluation system, which operated in real time on the floor of the competition. 89? <sighs> there was a system before the current system, but was it in real time? 89? No? Oh, you're wrong. It's <gasps> true. This is like Jackie Fye's big thing. This is like her big thing. She is credited with being the mastermind behind this system, and it was used to report judging irregularities. And so it started in 1989. If you read about 
judging in 1991 at the world championships in Indianapolis, it comes up, et cetera. So maybe Jackie needs to come out of retirement and build something for NCAA judges for you guys. <laughs> I listened to an entire <laughs> season of <laughs> judging great. Only one? So. Spencer losing <laughs> his mind. Spencer, at the World Championships and Olympic Games, there have always been awards for the top three finisher. False. You are correct. We could, we're not going to go into all the details, but to give a few examples, the first Olympics had awards only for the top two places. Um, at the first World Championships, Everyone pretty much got awards. Uh, the teams received Ugh. art pieces, and you could choose your art piece based on the order you finish. And personally, <laughs> I'm a little disappointed that I never won a Warhol back in my day or anything. Really? So, yeah. Did Jessica worth- invent early gymnastics? Because I feel like that's a system that only you would come up with. Like, yeah, everyone gets to pick a painting. I love speaking of which. had the best performance. Okay, Uncle Tim, true or false? There was a nude posing contest at one of the European gym festivals. This is kind of false. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Only kind of false. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I know what you're talking about. So back at, there used to be tableau vivants, which are like living pictures where they would pose and like tell stories with poses, but they weren't necessarily nude. They were wearing like white because they wanted to look like statues. However, however, the men during a lot of their calisthenics, it was kind of like a men's physique challenge, like bodybuilding kind of thing. Like the comments the judges used to leave were essentially about, oh, really great chest, small waist. And this is probably a lot of like, where men's body issues come from. And there are a lot of attitudes about what kind of body men, male gymnasts should have to this day. But yes, I think it's false-ish. I know what you're thinking. You oh, burned it up a little bit. Made it I had story with the nude. everything right <laughs> but the naked part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so back to you, Jessica. Men have never competed on balancing at the Olympic Games. True or false? I think that's true. Is it count that it was that? Because they had that thing. It was like a this fence. Is a long answer for a it true was like or a false question. What post, I'm but I, I don't think men did it. I'm just gonna say no. They never did beam. You're wrong. At the 1912 <laughs> and 1920 Olympics, the men competed on balance beam as part of the Swedish system, um, and. Another interesting tidbit, we often think of side horse, kind of the width-wise vault as a women's only event. However, that's not the case. Men competed on side horse vault at 1924 and 1928 Olympics. Uh, Spencer, the first time the men competed on the six apparatus without any additional events like rope climb or discus or whatever was during the Nazi Olympics in 1936. True. It's true. The torch relay and the men's six event program are remnants of the Nazi Olympics. And this will become Jessica's new favorite rationale for eliminating events for men's gymnastics because we cannot do something the Nazis did. That's right. Jessica, 
to simplify history, there were the bourgeois Olympics and then there were the workers Olympics. Which of these events were not part of the 1925 workers Olympics? A, the flying rings, B, high bar, C, parallel bars, or D, vault? I feel like the labor movement is not going to like the real artsy fartsy thing. And I think the most artsy fartsy of those is flying rings. <laughs> you're correct. I don't know if your rationale is correct, but your <laughs> an- final answer is correct. Um, yes. And I know you love flying rings. So you probably are wondering why they were scratched. Yeah. Um, what the hell? They're the, the ni- best event. <laughs> At the 1950 World Championships, gymnasts had a choice of flying rings or uneven bars, and only two teams chose flying rings. Um, So that same year at the 1950 FIG Congress, they were preparing the program for the 1952 Olympic Games, and the delegates voted whether they wanted flying rings or uneven bars, and the delegates voted for uneven bars. So it was a democratic decision. There could be, you know, I don't know, different... Uh, views on gender that were related to that, even though I think that uh, a lot of people saw flying rings as kind of a feminine kind of thing. But um, anyway, at the time, there were also some negative attitudes towards flying rings. Some thought it was kind of too easy. Others thought it wasn't, didn't have much of a feature, which I think implies that they didn't see how this could become more advanced. There are only a certain number of skills you could really do on the flying rings. Hmm. And then Cirque du Soleil came along and proved them all wrong, which is why we should add it back and get rid of pommel horse, except for specialists for tiebreakers, like Nedaroshik <laughs> and like three other dudes. <laughs> there, I fixed it. Spencer, this podcast is obsessed with Nellie Kim. So here we go. In 1980, Nellie Kim essentially drafted her fantasy gymnastics team. Which of these gymnasts was not on the team? A, Karen Jans. B, Viera Czeslaska, C, Larissa Latina, D, Nellie Kim. Oh, um. Isn't Nellie Kim always the answer? D, Nellie Kim. (laughs) You're correct. She did not choose herself, even though she chose herself in Dakota points many times. (laughs) But (laughs) allegedly. I would have also said that even if Jessica didn't give me the answer beforehand. I would have said that (laughs) You just couldn't help it. One final question. Winner takes all. This is a question from behind the scenes, I believe. And we'll see if you guys did any research to figure this out. (laughs) The answer is already no. You did not. (laughs) How far apart were were the bars in 1992? Jessica, we'll start with you. Twelve holes. When it was, when the thing was <laughs> you have to give me a, some kind of measurement. Oh, the poops. Uh, this is going to be, um, they were like three feet, four, three, four, four feet apart. Okay. You're going with uh, four feet apart. All right. Spencer, your answer. I'm taking the under, I'm taking lower. All right. Which is, you have to give a number though. All right. Four feet apart is what? 48 inches? 
47 mm-hmm. inches. Okay. Jessica technically is closer, but it's actually farther <laughs> than you guys thought. It's farther <laughs> than you guys thought. So according to the apparatus norms, actually, technically, you're both correct. But according to the apparatus <laughs> norms published in 1989, the bars were between 90 and 140 centimeters. The farthest setting would have been 55.11 inches. Um, and so you guys are both within the range technically, but I think a lot of gymnasts probably went on the farther setting, which would have been over four feet, 55 inches. Um, and that was the horizontal distance. Nowadays we measure diagonally, so it's a little bit different. So it was about 90% of today's farthest distance. And the low bar, if you're wondering, was 160 centimeters. The high bar was 240 centimeters. I feel like there's actually like an entire Reddit thread about this and people don't know the answers to it. So that's your answer, Jim Turnett. Um, does this mean that I won because Spencer just copied me and I already have five, six, seven, eight, nine points according to me and Spencer only has eight? I think it's a tie. I'm going to call it a tie. Because you you're missed both like three and I didn't miss any. I missed three and maybe you didn't miss any. <laughs> I missed, I mean, technically the last one, I guess. Yeah. I'll give you the last one. All right. I'll give you the win. It's fine. <laughs> Uncle Tim was supposed to be doing the scores here. Um, <laughs> did we talk about the rounding? Have we covered the rounding? I have questions about the rounding. We did not talk about it, but back in the day, they used fractions for one competition, not every competition, but they used fractions instead of actually doing rounding and decimal points because when you have you know, two thirds versus one third, there's rounding and rounding errors. So at the 1938 World Championships, they actually used like two thirds and one third to calculate their scores instead of using six point point six six seven or whatever you would use nowadays, it's which I think totally would make sense or very more happy. accurate. <laughs> yeah. Thank exactly. God they don't use fractions anymore. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would constantly be like, who won? What? who did it uh but i i mean i specifically read that whole thing about math just for you spencer really mm. that's why i did it because i was like oh this is spencer's dream when they used to have fractions uh so um i want to thank dr uncle tim for uh even though you have a one month one year and one month old is that correct? Correct. Good job with the math, yes. Ha! I'm good with baby math. The other math, forget it. I don't know. But this, I'm good with. Um, for making time to come on the show, um, and also for all the work you've done on gymnastics-history.com, because honestly, it is so helpful. It's incredible, the research that you've done. Like, you have disturbed my version of what I thought gymnastics history was, and it's been painful, but I'm also so glad to know the truth. And I literally have annotated my gymnastics books based on your research. So thank you for putting your PhD to the correct use, which is fixing gymnastics history. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, I should have done my PhD in that instead. 
<laughs> I mean, there's always time for another one. You've done all the other stuff. Right? <laughs> oh God, no! It what was is so enough? fun. Everyone's like, "Let me do another PhD" because that experience was so it was the best of my life. Um, <laughs> it's like elite you... gymnastics, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, if you guys are enjoying what we're doing here, check out Club Gym Nerd for those extra podcasts. We will see you on Friday at noon, where we will discuss all the latest news. Um, and also, there's something else we were going to discuss on behind the scenes that uh, spent. Well, now I can't remember what it was, but something that came up today that we were going to talk about. Behind, oh yeah, your dad's secret gardening work for murder people. <laughs> Spencer, that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, that's what happened. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. And um, of course, you can find me at Oda the Burn, Spencer's The BB Situation, Kensley's Kensley, and Uncle Tim is at gymnastics-history.com or Uncle Tim Talks Men's Gym on the socials. And we are, of course, Gymcastic on Twitter and Facebook and all the things. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Uncle Tim for his triumphant return to the show. And we'll see you guys on Friday. Until then, remember to take off on gay, split on rights, and thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>